Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 28th, 2022. It seems a particularly vertiginous kind of month we're having of Ukraine war and cryptocurrency meltdown and post-war Roe versus Wade and all sorts of other dramatic uncertainties, although our age of vertigo seems uh, to go on and on. Back in 2011, I wrote a book called Digital Vertigo, How Today's Online Social Media Revolution is Dividing, Diminishing and Disorienting Us. That division and diminishment and disorientation seems to be compounded or being compounded over the last 11 years. Uh, This idea of vertigo is a sensation, uh, at least according to an online dictionary, of the environment around us moving or spinning. Um, It's it's very disorienting. Um, You get a, a feeling of nausea, of vomiting, of sweating, of generally feeling unwell. And of course, It seems to be a condition of modernity. I named my book Digital Vertigo after Hitchcock's great uh, 1958 masterpiece, Vertigo, a movie about falling or about the fear of falling. Uh, It's a remarkable book. Uh, The poster, everything about it, the images, many of you have seen it, will remember Jimmy Stewart holding on for grim life uh, with his fingertips from a building and that defined his sense, his fear of vertigo. Uh, The movie is also enriched by Bernard Herrmann's remarkable score. The music of vertigo is as good as the imagery and artists seem very attracted by vertigo. Uh, The great Anglo-German writer W.G. Siebold wrote a book called Vertigo and musicians that haven't fall, uh, ha- haven't missed out either. You too uh, had a big hit song uh, uh, called uh, Vertigo, which uh, Bono particularly liked. Um, the opposite, of course, of Vertigo, this feeling of everything spinning around us, a feeling of nausea, vomiting, and sweating, is the idea of balance. And rather than talking about vertigo for this show. We are indeed talking about balance, a new book out, Balance, How It Works and What It Means with the Canadian philosopher Paul uh, Thagard, who is joining us uh, from his home near Toronto. Paul, welcome. Thank Uh, you. Have I done an okay job uh, comparing and contrasting balance with vertigo? Is the opposite of balance vertigo? You begin your book noting that you and some other members of your family suffered or have suffered from vertigo? Well, the vertigo metaphors you describe are wonderful. But what got me into an interest in balance was actually a real case of vertigo, that is the physiological problem. So I was down in my basement lifting weights when, uh, when I got up, suddenly the room started to spin. And I had friends who had vertigo, so I know what it was, but it was really distressing because the walls were just going round and round. I couldn't even hold myself up. I had to hold on to the walls and the railings even to get up the stairs. Uh, And it turned out I had the fairly benign kind of vertigo, but that got me interested in the question of balance in general. 
And from there, I went to try to understand how that works from a neurological point of view, because I do a lot of work in computational neuroscience. But I also got really interested when I started realizing how important balanced metaphors are to the way we understand everything from life work balance to the problem that became really prominent during the pandemic of balancing lives and livelihoods. Uh, I assume you've seen uh, Hitchcock's Vertigo. What do you think of the film? Oh, it's a wonderful film. I, in fact, I discuss it in the book because I've got a discussion of val balance and imbalance in the arts. Uh, and so I love that movie the first time I saw it and I watched it again for the sake of writing the book. And it's really quite marvelous in all the dimensions that you describe. The music is great. The poster is great. Uh, but what's really interesting is the way in which uh, Hitchcock uses vertigo as a psychological theme. It's not real vertigo in the film. I mean, there's lots of scenes of dizziness, but dizziness is different from vertigo because vertigo, it additionally means in the physiological sense that you feel something spinning. Either your head is spinning around or the room is spinning around. But what Hitchcock is getting at is the kind of vertigo that his main character, played by James Stewart, uh, feels because his whole life is is a mess. He's confused about the woman he's in love with. He's confused with everything else that's happening. But he has good reason to be confused with the woman he's in love with because it turns out that he thought he was in love with a rich blonde heiress and he actually yeah. turns out, I don't know if he's in love with her, but he turns out that he's been in a relationship with a brunette shop girl. Um, and of course, what Hitchcock is doing in, in the way that only Hitchcock could do it is remind us and warn us about being wary of great seductions. Uh, what Jimmy Stewart didn't have, as you suggest, uh, Paul, was balance, which made him both in a, I guess, a psychological, but also in a physiological sense, which made him very vulnerable to vertigo. Is that your point? That it's not sure, just he, physiological, he, he, it's cultural, it's sociological? That's right. Uh, he had both kinds of imbalance because he got dizzy and, want, and and tended to fall off high buildings. But he also had the other sort of imbalance that many of us experience in relationships that where we don't understand how to find order in our lives. So they work both ways. And I was really interested for the sake of the book to cover both of them, to cover both what goes on in your brain when the room is spinning or your head is spinning around and figuring out what's gone wrong between your, uh, what your brain is doing, what your body is doing, I and mean, that's the physiological kind of imbalance. But I'm also really interested in the kind of balance that often helps govern our lives when we worry about a balance in our health or in our politics, or for example, in a balance of power, or even in trying to understand nature as having a kind of balance of nature. Yeah, and that imbalance, of course, is particularly marked. I did a show yesterday with the geostrategist Peter uh, Zihan um, talks about the end of globalization. He has a new book out. The end of the world is just the beginning, mapping the collapse of globalization. And earlier today, I did a show about the missing crypto queen, uh, uh, a Bulgarian, German-Bulgarian woman called Ruha Ignatova, who was en engaged in a $15 billion crypto scam. We live in an age of the end of globalization, of cryptocurrency, of so much other instability around us, Paul. Do you think that every generation thinks that it lives in a particularly unbalanced, vertiginous age, or is there something particularly spinning, particularly 
uh, nauseous about our own age? Well, every generation has its own problems. I guess when I was a little kid, people worried a lot about nuclear war because the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union could lead to that. So that was probably a major worry of imbalance in my parents' generation. But now there are so many things that are really scary. I mentioned the pandemic, uh, worries about climate change. And climate change is another case where balanced metaphors come up because people were worried that we're going to hit a tipping point. So tipping point is an imbalance metaphor. A tipping point is analogous to when the body falls over. And, now and, and that's, of course, a concept that your fellow Canadian writer, Malcolm Gladwell, has popularized the tipping point. That's right. He popularized it, but it's played a big role in science really for a long time under different names like inflection points or, or, uh, or, or critical thresholds. And so, but it's a really important idea because we tend to assume everything is going to go along nice and in a stable fashion. But when you hit these tipping points, when you have something like a fall, or to use the metaphor in that book you showed, a collapse, then things are really different. And you've got great reason to be afraid, just as we do about the collapse of civilization that could come about because of all the different kinds of conflicts we have in the world and the other problems I mentioned, like pandemics and and uh, climate change. Yeah, I hadn't thought of climate change, but of course, you're absolutely right. We've done so many shows on the imbalance of climate change. I, I, I'm curious, Paul, there seems something very Aristotelian, very classically Greek in, in, in context of antiquity about the idea of balance. Uh, you're a, a philosopher as, 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 as well as many other things. Who invented the idea of balance? Was it Aristotle? Well, it's a word that existed in, in ancient Greek language and society. But what Aristotle introduced was the idea of the golden mean, which is a kind of balance metaphor. His idea was you want your life to be uh, not just at the extremes, but to be at the mean, to be a kind of average. And so I think that was an early balance idea. How have you, I mean, in terms of tracing, of telling the story of the intellectual idea of balance, who, in addition to Aristotle, do you think have contributed to this genealogy of the word and of the concept? Who are the important figures in the uh, development of the word of the concept? Well, I trace a lot of the, the balance metaphors back to various uh, technological developments. Uh, so a lot of our, our balance metaphors, things like equilibrium, come from the weight scale. So weight scale was invented in ancient Egypt around uh, 20, I forget, it's what, 2500 BC. So it's about 4,500 years old. And so we start off with the idea of bodily balance, but the actual words like balance and equilibrium come from the scales comes from what people started to use to be able to weigh different kinds of materials. So before that, people probably did manage to figure out which walk was heavier or which pile of furs was heavier by balancing just with their hands. But the scale made it much more precise. So the scale was a really huge part of making the idea of balance relevant to our whole lives. It, it generated the idea of equilibrium, which became important for physics and for economics and even for philosophy. The idea of motion, of course, is a, is a modern scientific development. Um, were there periods in the past, perhaps ancient Egypt, for example, which were perfectly balanced, but also rooted in decay? I mean, can you think of societies which perhaps in contrast 
to our own, which is rooted by, defined by so much change, uh, where balance epitomizes that world? Well, the ancient Greeks argued about this a lot. Some philosophers thought that everything was inherently stable, but others like Heraclitus proposed that we were in a constant state of flux. So he was really the first philosopher of imbalance, supposing that what's going on is full of these constant changes. But Heraclitus, was, he wasn't making, I'm not sure if he was making a, a value judgment. He was simply arguing that this was what reality was. Right. Yeah, that's what he thought was the, that flux was the basic nature of reality. Whereas other philosophers like Pythagoras looked to the numbers for signs of permanence where you don't have to worry about balance and balance. But quite frankly, Heraclitus was closer to the truth because we do well, have what, lots what, of change. What contribution do you think modern scientists from Newton to Einstein have made in terms of rethinking the idea both scientifically and philosophically of balance, given there, the ways in which both Newton and Einstein made motion so central in their scientific breakthroughs? I think modern science has made a lot of contributions. Of one, if just trying to figure out how balance works in the brain, there's been huge advances, advances in the last couple of decades in figuring out how the brain can do really complicated things. So when your brain is figuring out whether you're balanced or falling, it's doing a really complicated kind of computation, taking information in from your ears, from your from your inner ears and from your eyes and from your body and putting it all together. And now, because there's been huge advances in neuroscience, we've got a pretty good understanding of how the brain does this, operating in what used to be thought of as a primitive part of the brain, the brainstem, that's putting all this together. And so I think we now have a pretty good idea of how the brain manages to compute balance and figure it out balance. We also get a good idea of how it fails, how it breaks down, how it makes the mistake of thinking that the room is spinning when it's not. When I was down in my basement, I knew the room wasn't spinning. I knew there was something going on that needed explanation. Uh, and now we've got that kind of explanation based on brain processes. So that's one of the major scientific breakthroughs that's come with understanding balance and vertigo. Paul, um, our brain, of course, and you're the neuroscientist, so excuse me if I'm talking nonsense, but the brain determines our aesthetic judgments. I wonder um, whether there's something about our brain that makes balance a, a thing of beauty. Uh, we did a show a couple of months ago with the ballerina Tony Bennett on George Balanty, uh, on Balanchine, the man who loved women. His book is, uh, her book is called Serenade, a book about the beauty of dance and of the balance of the ballerina. What is it about watching balance that, that, that determines beauty for us? Perhaps not just in watching uh, a ballet dancer about a beautiful ballerina and in the way in which somebody like Balanchine choreo choreographed that, but also of, of art, of music. You're absolutely right that balance is really important for those fields, for art and, and music. And I think we do have an inclination to find balance. My favorite definition of beauty is unity and variety. And so you need to have a, a picture or, or an image that's sufficiently complicated, but you also need to have unity in it. And the unity is often based on balance. So if you look at great picture, pictures like uh, Da Vinci's um, The Last Supper, perfectly balanced because you've got the apostles on either side of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, and people have pointed this out as well, 
you don't want perfect balance. That is, if, if both sides of the painting were exactly the same, you'd have perfect balance, but it'd be kind of boring. So you need variety. You also need imbalance. All right, and I'm thinking of uh, Picasso, who's, whose genius was for the representation of imbalance, perhaps all of modern art. Well, not all of modern art, but certainly Picasso, because he violated principles of, of symmetry of faces in his Cubist paintings. Suddenly, the face is all over itself. And, and frankly, I don't think it's beautiful, but it's certainly striking. Art isn't just about beauty, it's about emotional engagement. And Picasso achieved great emotional engagement by violating our expectations of balance, our expectations of symmetry. And the same, of course, is true of, of music. I, I mentioned... Um the uh, the uh, the Ballantyre, the Balanchine book. Balanchine was very close to Stravinsky, and of course Stravinsky and his Rite of Spring, um, his great ballet, um, undermined at least early twentieth century sense of balance, which outraged the world. And yet today, when you listen to the Rite of Spring, it, it sounds perfectly balanced. It sounds perfectly natural. So how does balance change over time, Paul? Why would the Rite of Spring sound so outrageous, so unbalanced to an audience in 1912 or 1920, and today seems completely natural? Well, the musical analog of balance is consonance and dissonance. And so we naturally like consonance, but if you have only consonants, it would get kind of boring. So even Beethoven, long before Stravinsky, would throw dissonant tones into his symphonies to make them more interesting. Now, Stravinsky just took it much farther and people found it intolerable initially because they just weren't used to that amount of dissonance, but people did adapt to it and get, get to like it and to realize that it wasn't just pure dissonance. There were lots of consonant aspects there as well. So with music as with art, it's often best when we get a balance between balance and imbalance. In fact, I introduced a term for what, the, what this amounts to. I call it metabalance where we're trying to figure out, yes, balance is good, but uh, imbalance makes things more interesting. And what you really get when you get great art or great music or even a complicated life is this kind of meta-balance involving balancing balance and imbalance. Paul, uh, as you know, I'm talking to you from San Francisco in Silicon Valley, the city on the, uh, the edge of the center of disruption the great entrepreneurs are disruptors, Mark Zuckerberg famously said, you know, move, break things and move fast. All the great companies, the great tech startups from Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Facebook, they've all been great disruptors. Is there something about economic innovation that makes it, by definition, unbalanced? How does balance work in economics? Well, in economic theory, the favorite idea is still equilibrium. It's the idea that prices as a result of supply and demand and equilibrium will go to a stable point. But of course, you don't want just stability in economics too. You want these big breakthroughs. Uh, until recently, my son Adam worked for Apple. And so I visited him there in Silicon Valley and Apple has had these great disruptions. We've got these wonderful things like the, the iPhone that have changed people's lives. Uh, so economics is also a matter of balance and imbalance. The balance part is equilibrium. The other part, the imbalance is the disruption. And the disruptions can be really scary when we have recessions and dramatic changes as happened after the pandemic started. But on the other hand, you want to have these technological advances that, like, that make our lives a lot better. Paul, do you think that both politicians and artists might 
find balance and um, in your work, or at least lessons on balance. Are the challenges for an artist and a politician the same? Well, or, or the, are the challenges to be a good artist or a good politician? In the abstract, they're the same. So I give a, a kind of scientific explanation of balance in terms of satisfying lots of different constraints. So we don't have to just stay at the metaphorical level. When we go at it from a cognitive science point of view, we can actually develop computer models of how this works, of how a computer or the brain can have different constraints that it works with that it has to balance and come up with something coherent. So I think that both our physiological balance and balance in our lives and in our economy and in our physical worlds are a matter of of coming up with a coherent interpretation of all these different constraints. So what I hope would interest people who've looked at only these narrow aspects of balance, either because of physiological problems or because of the economy, because of the art, I hope they'll be interested in the fact that they're all, they're, they, they share this common basis in the brain's capability of finding coherence to make sense of our complex world. Well, you're a, 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 a bit of a, a tightrope walker yourself, uh, author of many highly reputable scholarly books, Hot Thought, Mind Introduction to Cognitive Science, Mind Society. Um, is this book a kind of balance, this latest book of yours, how it works and what it means? Is it a kind of high wire intellectual act itself? Are you bringing together lots of different concepts? Yes, I'm trying to tie together both the neurophysiology of what's going on in the brain when you keep your body balanced as you walk down the road with all these wonderful metaphors that we've been talking about from science and art and, and music. Um, so I try to put them all together. I guess I never thought of it as a balancing act when I was writing it. I was just having fun. I just kept being surprised. Oh, there's this other area of, of balance metaphors that I hadn't thought about. I also had a lot of fun figuring out what's probably the most original point of the uh, part of the book from the point of view of science of uh, figuring out where our conscious experiences come from. So balance uh, and especially vertigo and nausea and all the other things you mentioned at the beginning, these are feelings that we have. And so there's lots of really good work done on the neurophysiology of balance from the point of view of how your ears are interacting with your brain. But nobody had talked about how it is that conscious experience could come out of this. And so I used my theories about consciousness to apply it to balance as well. We live in an age, Paul, again, you don't need me to tell you this, of great anxiety, done many shows, particularly the anxiety of the young. Um, how does your theory of balance play out in the mental realm, particularly when it comes to uh, this, some people even argue that the pandemic of anxiety, which is affecting young people in particular in, in, the, in the 2020s? Well, it's anxious for us old people, too, because we're worried about the dangers of the disease. But certainly it's had a bigger disruptive on people whose lives are just supposed to be getting rolling right now. Um, so when we're talking about anxiety, you need an account of what emotions are. And so that plays a role there, too, because when you have vertigo, either of the literal or the metaphorical sort, it comes with anxiety. So how do our emotions work? Well, the account of consciousness in the brain that I apply to balance also applies very well to our emotions. So in my theory of emotions, the brain manages to come up with a coherent account that combines three things. It combines our perception of the current environment, such as the pandemic. It combines also 
what's going on in our bodies because our bodies are reacting. Anxiety involves things like rapid heartbeats and sweaty palms. And so you've got all those different things going on all at once, but also requires an interpretation, an evaluation where your brain is evaluating, thinking, how does this fit with my goals? Am I going to be able to survive? Am I going to be able to have a good job? Am I going to have a family? And so emotions from that point of view, including anxiety, are balancing acts as well, where the brain is figuring out how to combine its interpretation of the situation with its interpretation of the changes that are taking place in your body. So these kinds of emotions, including anxiety, are also balancing acts. Yeah, it sort of it reminds me of Hitchcock's Vertigo was designed to make us feel anxious, but only, of course, for an hour and a half where we sat in the dark watching the movie and then we came out of the cinema and we were back to real life. But there seems to be something, Paul, where there's a, a particular fascination and attraction with, the, with watching the act of, of balance, particularly the daring higher wire act I described you earlier of as a high wire intellectual, but of course, the high wire acts that we are most we most remember are of I guess they're called artists or daredevils like Charles uh, Blondin who uh, uh, who walked across Niagara Falls, uh, and of course uh, uh, other high wire acts like um, Philip. Petit, who walked uh, on the Twin Towers before they were destroyed in 9-11. We seem to have a particular attraction with high wire acts. Here we have an image of a, a tightrope walk above Times Square. What is it about watching men like Petit um, and Charles uh, Blondin, who walked across Niagara? What is it about that that makes us so excited why why is this a form of art because most of us would be enormously fearful i mean we just fall off and die well there's two things that i think the higher wire act does for it first of all it enables us to imagine ourselves in that kind of perilous situation we're all used to balancing at least in moderate ways but there you've got possible death as a result so it's engaging in that way because you can see it as this exciting and dangerous event but it also gives us something else. It also gives us metaphors. It gives us metaphors like the one you use of talking about life as a higher wire actor as the one I keep using, a balancing act. And so I think that the Walendas and these other great uh, balancing artists that you describe provide both this physiological stimulation, but also the mental stimulation where we think about what's going on when we're trying to balance our lives and our work lives together. It suggests perhaps there is value to the circus. We should all be going more to circuses. Maybe we've lost something, spending all our time online. That's what I argued, I guess, in Digital Vertigo. What has digital technology done to all this, uh, uh, Paul? Are you uh, a skeptic like me? Do you think that perhaps our sense of balance is being undermined? Too many people spend too much time, of course, online and perhaps take it a little bit too seriously, particularly social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook? Well, digital digital technology has done wonderful things for us, like the fact that I can talk to you in San Francisco, as we're doing right now. And uh, But it does have a downside. Right now, I'm writing a book on misinformation. And it's really clear that in the last 20 years, the amount of misinformation in the world has catastrophically increased. Uh, suddenly, it's so much easier than it used to be. 
to be able to spread all kinds of nonsense around uh, based on lies and based on emotions that are evoked and that are facilitated by social media such as Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and, and lots of other ones too. So it's really clear that despite the big advantages that we've gotten from all these digital technologies, we've really suffered from the kinds of misinformation that they've helped spread. Well, we certainly need more balance. And one way to start is by reading Paul Fagan's new book, Balance, How It Works and What It Means. When I was thinking of books about balance, Paul, I thought of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, a classic about a kind of contemporary way of, of gaining balance. What other books on balance do you think might be helpful in addition to yours to, to read? Well, one of the books I enjoyed most for the misinformation uh, reading that's also kind of relevant to balance is a book by an anthropologist and an archaeologist called The Dawn of Everything. And yes. The, and the reason it's relevant to uh, misinformation is because they're identifying misinformation about the origins of inequality. David because, Graeber and a, and a British anthropologist. Yeah, David, David Wengrow. Um, yeah. So the, the reason this is relevant to misinformation is because people have told all sorts of myths about how the world started off being unequal, either because there was a, a Hobbesian state of nature or because, as Rousseau thought, everything was perfect until agriculture came along. And what's great about the book is that it shows that those are way too simple stories, that if you look at in detail at the different civilizations and their origins, you'll find that, in fact, early civilizations, including current hunter-gatherer societies, work in lots of different ways. And so we need to find a kind of balance between the sort of... Although, of, Paul, uh, to, to be fair, I mean, Graeber and his co-author are writing something that I'm not saying you want to hear that, but many people want to hear that. Many people want to escape this Hobbesian, Rousseauan uh, choice and get to a third one, which is somehow better. I mean, that. Th their argument is a polemic, too, for better or worse. Of course, it's a polemic. Graeber is a well-known anarchist, but they're also good scientists. They provide, I, I, there's a couple of mistakes in the book that I and other people have noticed, but by, by and large, it's an incredibly careful examination of lots of different cultures and lots of different societies. Uh, so from that point of view, I think it is a have a kind of balance of theory and, and evidence in a way that the Hobbesian story and the Rousseau story just aren't. They were based just made up. Here, it's it's much more data driven. Uh, so we've got to figure out how, how we get a society that isn't based on either of those extremes, but gives us the really the power and the obligation to figure out how do we want society to be? How do we balance freedom with harm. That is, we don't we want people to have as much freedom as possible, but we don't want them to be able to harm each other by, for example, by sending misinformation or by getting them sick. And so there we've got to be able to figure out and to realize we've got control over this. It's a political decision. It's something that can be made by social choice that we can get the kind of balance in the society that is good for everybody.